Warning, the podcast you're about to listen to may contain graphic descriptions of violent assaults, murder, and adult language. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Murder Police Podcast, The Murder of Clay Nelson, Part 2 of 2. And I'm David. And we are the Murder Police Podcast. Well, I'll tell you what, Wendy, what's neat is this is episode two of the murder of Clay Nelson. And episode one, I think, was mind-blowing. Would you not agree? It really was. The amount of evidence, and aside of the evidence with the Thousand Island dressing and the necktie, even more than that, what really got me was the amount of sheer terror that Clay Nelson must have been feeling at knowing that Eric Hayden and Clarence Jones was trying to kill him. Absolutely. It's, I've said before that some crime scenes actually tell a story, and they offer so much detail if the investigators are paying attention. And fortunately for this case, is uh, Fran Root was the lead investigator and was working with some fantastic detectives back in 1986 in Lexington. And it tells a story. It tells a story of, of uh, horror, and I think that's the best way to look at it. It really does. And aside of Fran being as exceptional as, as he was when he was in that unit, just knowing that Clay gave the biggest hint and clue of all of who his murderer was when he wrote Clarence in the Thousand Island Dressing. Yeah, that's just... Uh that's beyond comprehension to me in some ways. And I think that that's what people probably walked away from that last episode with. And on this next episode, where we close this case out with episode two is that Fran is going to talk more about even more evidence. And and I'm telling you, I just, it's so rare that you have real direct physical evidence in murder cases. Hollywood and TV make people believe that, but it's not as common. You're usually you're left with witness statements and circumstantial uh, evidence, and that's a little tougher to prove with. But you know, like I joked uh, when we were talking in the interview that I think he got some of the evidence I should have got maybe 10 years later. Oh, I think so. He definitely did. And the fact that this case was closed so quickly, less than 24 hours. Oh, yeah. So he beat the 48 thing. You know, another thing I really enjoyed, too, was uh, Eric and Jonathan. Uh, having them in the room added a lot of liveliness to it. The the injections and the conversation that started and the questions were were perfect. I think they represented our our fans and all the true crime fan people out there excellently. And I'm excited for people to get to hear more about them. And certainly people need to tune into the Lexington podcast. I'm telling you, that's a fantastically produced show. Yeah, it really is. And they are great people. And it was just really neat letting them set in with us and having them meet Fran when they had covered him. It was kind of like, well, you know, I always say Fran's a movie star anyway. So it was kind of like meeting somebody that was somebody they had talked about. So I imagine that was probably pretty neat for them. At least I hope it was. Yeah, I can tell the listeners, just if you can imagine this, is that uh, them meeting Fran after hearing him before on our podcast. And then do you remember when Fran came in the studio and he opens up that bag and he starts to take out what he called his uh, trial preparation jackets, I think is what he calls them. They're not the full-size murder book, but 
Fran was really big back in the when he was in, investigating these cases about having these trial prep books. It was almost like Christmas when he was handing it those was. out. It was. It really and, was. And getting to look at those. And so what I like is that uh, that energy definitely comes through on these episodes. I hope we can do something more with Eric and Jonathan in the future. They it's just a mad the energy that comes in the room is is incredible. So with that, let's go ahead and uh, move forward and let everybody listen to the uh, episode two in the final episode in the murder of Clay Nelson. All right. But but the truly remarkable thing that that we learned inside that cooler was we found a cardboard shipping box for salad dressing, and it was sitting there, and you could see that there was a small piece of stiff board like a paper board, it was folded over several times to make a stylus type of thing, and it was dipped in Thousand Island dressing, and actually Clay had written out the name Clarence right on top of the box. Wow. So he, in effect, testified from the grave Mm -hmm. by doing that. Wow. Yeah, it's just, and like we talked earlier, you know, that, that's where you just, you know, uh, and you're going to gather some more information later on that these guys, I mean, this wasn't a botched robbery. This, this was an intentional robbery murder. I think everybody got quiet for the same reason I did, because when you get evidence like that, is it paints a horrific picture. Of, uh, of, you know, a lot of times you don't have those things that start to talk about the effort somebody made to stay alive and how long that must have mm-hmm. gone on. And that, that starts to speak what was going on in their mind and in their heart when that happened. And I know that there was a fire scene, but could you make out in that location at all where the assault started? And then could you like track it back to the freezer? Was there enough evidence to show her? It's a fairly small area in the back um, room area the, and the office where the panic button was. Uh, was maybe 50 feet away from, from the 40 feet away from the back door and then at a diagonal, another 30 feet to the walk-in cooler. So very small area. And, and we could find, even with all the water on the floor, we could find areas where you could see blood uh, around the back there. How did the defendants know the uh, victim had they worked there previously yes oh yeah clarence was a bus boy oh i see and uh and he had worked there that night and uh, i'll get to another piece of evidence here just shortly uh because one of the things that you always do is when you have a case at night you come back in the daylight sure and you go back over the scene well when we did that uh we walked around a half a dozen of these apartment buildings on both sides of the street because apparently they had been over on the other street as well. And right there in plain view at the corner of the apartment unit, right next to the 1670, their residence, we found a Kroger-type plastic bag. And inside of it were uh, boots with blood on them. Uh, a Columbia's busboy uniform shirt uh, and a pair of black pants. Uh, and upon closer inspection, we found a driver's license in the back pocket of those pants, and it belonged to Clarence Jones. 
Just sitting in the middle of a street? No, it oh. was it, it it was right at the back corner, kind of the same general area as we found the money bag on the front corner of their building. He just went to the to the next building toward Columbia's, and when he got to the back corner, far back corner of that building, that's where you saw the bag stashed. Wow! So they didn't make any great efforts to really hide their evidence, which you know. Pointed fingers at them. I'm thinking they were hoping to get back to a lot of that, you know, recover the money from the bush and recover the bag of the clothes. Because, I mean, that was only talking about a matter of minutes between uh, uh, all of this happening and us arriving uh, at their scene. So uh, they start the pursuit at 0329, and it's 352 that uh, they call in the report of the stolen car. So trying to trying to divert attention away from them by using the stolen car tactic ends up ultimately pointing fingers at them. Well, that's true. Uh, it was a tough game to play, but I th- think that they felt like they had to do it because it's their car registered to them. The only complicating factor is it was registered to Clarence at his prior address. Uh, he hadn't changed uh, his address with the registration yet. So, uh, I mean, we would have gotten to him very quickly anyway. And that's a typical thing, is that uh, when somebody's car is involved with a crime, they, they rush somewhere and report it stolen. But I like the way Eric and Jonathan hit on it, that there was a Pandora's box, that there was a risk move for them to put more effort and belief in that I'll defray them because crossing that threshold of that door is a big deal. And, yes. uh, and I don't know how much the listeners are aware of that, but that's one of those things that when you say, do you got a warrant, that's meant that's a threshold of a home. And when somebody invites you in, anything you observe, like you said, is yours. That, that they, Thank God they weren't thinking that clearly. Right. And we even had the added thing of some exigency just to clear the house. Uh, so when the detectives first went in, a couple of them would, would talk to the two defendants out in the main room of the house, but other detectives would walk casually around the bedroom and bathroom in the back of the apartment. Explain the ex- uh, the exception on agency because people may not understand yeah, that. What yeah, what does that mean? It, it's a way to protect yourself. Uh, you've uh, got a situation where these two defendants have already made themselves suspect in a uh, a very violent murder, arson, robbery, and uh, and so you've got the right to protect yourself to look around anywhere that a person could be in that house because a person is what's going to hurt you, uh, and so there could be a third person hiding in a closet or something like that. So now you can't start going through drawers or anything mm-hmm. else because a person can't be in there. Is that like when you see in the movies where the cops are walking around with their gun like up and being very stealthy about how they look around corners and things like that? Yeah, to ensure that it's the no same thing, only yeah. low key. Yeah, uh, you know we don't have weapons out and we're trying to, you know, canvas have these people not think right away that they're that we know that they're suspects. Mm-hmm. Very powerful stuff because the idea is like Fran was saying is you you could have another suspect, you could have another victim in there. You've got all that blood evidence and. Anything that you see is yours, but you just can't pry. But anything you can articulate after that point, so you had both uh, 
the two best things you can have is you had uh, informed consent and then you had the exigency mm-hmm. to back it up. That's a pretty good situation to yeah. be in. And we did observe, um, I think there was three or four blood spots in different areas. Do you ever run into trouble with defense attorneys, even though you have um, those those protocols in, oh, yeah. in place? They'll still call you on things like oh, that? Yeah, yeah th- they often will, but oftentimes the judge will listen to that in a separate hearing without the jury in place. So, and if the judge rules that your search was good, then... How often are you able to push that through? And how often are judges say, nope? Can't allow that in court. Uh, back in the day, uh, it was almost automatic. I mean, as long as you articulated uh, why you did what you did, and you did that within the law and within the case law that's laid down, it's, it's very clear what you can do and what you can't do. Now, over the years, uh, they refine some of those parameters uh, on you by new case law and such, but we were definitely in tune with with the case law at the time, and plus, um, we always did full disclosure, uh, including to the defense. So uh, we give you everything. And I kind of, when I would teach classes, I'd kind of equate it to you know you get in trouble at, at school, school teacher, mm-hmm. and uh, and you know that they're going to call your parents. So you're hauling your chubby butt yes. down the street <laughs> as quick as you can because you want to tell them first. Of course. Yeah. And, and it softens the blow to some extent. The same sometimes. reason why the defendants had called in their, their, their car. Exactly. It's a good point. Yeah. Very, very similar. Nothing to see here. <laughs> I'm the victim. Yeah. 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 Right. Well, and it's important. Those are called suppression hearings. And like Fran said, they come, they're not in front of a jury in trial. And usually, I'm going to be honest with you, a good defense attorney. We'll, we'll probably attack everything like that. that oh, yeah. We call protecting the record, and uh, and you'll you'll usually survive them. But most of your better attorneys will go ahead and do suppression hearings on virtually every Fourth Amendment issue that you come across. Wow. So that's a status, especially in a larger case like this, because I'm I'm kind of betting without asking too soon that this probably qualified as a capital case. Obviously, so mm-hmm. it uh, most good attorneys, and as a matter of fact, I've got. Um, a really good attorney that's agreed to come and do a show with me on what it's like to represent murder defendants, which will be a fantastic oh, can't episode. Wait to hear that, yeah. yeah, it'll be good. But it, yeah, it, uh, when you get in a business, that's what you have to be ready for is that uh, a good attorney is probably you're going to be in chain of custody reviews. I don't know how many of you had those oh, yeah. where, where you actually, for example, they'll take every item of evidence that's been booked. So if it's 400 things and you'll spend several days in circuit court. And everybody that handled those items one at a time will have to come in and testify as to when they handed it off and what condition it was in. And and those are those are the things in our system that protect us if we ever need them. So you, it's just a matter of fact. You but, never hear about stuff like that. Like the public doesn't. The mm-hmm. kind of monotonous, like the tedious stuff. Right. Yeah. Which of course I'm sure exists. But wow. but, but if if somebody in our industry drops the ball, is that's where that'll show up, and do, that's why it's important to have it. Do detectives go to these suppression hearings and argue for that evidence to still be? Um, yeah, it's such a much you don't argue for it, but for example, if it's a chain of custody, it's simply the idea that if I handed you something on a date and a time and then you gave it to Erica, is that we can validate the record keeping and okay. why it happened. Anytime it comes outside of control. It's more clerical. Exactly. And, and, and so what happens is that uh, uh, and I've had those before and they'll last a few days if they do everything, but it's part of protecting the record. It's uh, making sure. Same thing like Fran said, even on these things where uh, these search and seizure issues is that uh, – is you're just making sure that all the I's were dotted and T's were crossed. And so you, we learn not to take it personally, is that 
a good attorney, I, I know that if I was going to hire one, you bet that they better be checking everything. Thorough. <laughs> Thorough. That's what they're there for. And uh, the good ones, and I, don't, I shouldn't say the good ones, but because uh, they may not always decide to do it. But Well, an interesting thing that happens sometimes, if, if you get one that either isn't good or, or he doesn't think to, to try to suppress that piece of evidence, the judge will order a hearing anyway right. uh, to determine those facts. That way, there isn't a ground to appeal later on because the defense attorney didn't do the mm-hmm. best job he could do. It's in everybody's interest if it goes to appeals court that we all look okay, including the defense attorneys and the prosecutors and everybody, so you protect the record. But good stuff. Make total Interesting. sense. Yeah. Let's uh, go back to the defendants uh, at headquarters in individual interview rooms. Clarence uh, fairly quickly lawyers up, in other words, asks for representation from a lawyer. So that shuts us down right away. We, we can't do any more questioning. But it seemed like he lawyered up as soon as I pulled his driver's license out of his pants and, and showed it to him. From the Kroger bag? Mm-hmm. Oh, well, backing exactly. up a little, how did you convince them that you needed them to come down for questioning? Had you mentioned Columbia's? Or they, did they, they think started. it was part of the, the stolen car the thing? The stolen yeah. car. Yeah, it's, it, it was a, a runaway train that, that they let run away. So when you were in their apartment talking to them, do you just casually say, well, why don't we go down and talk a little bit more about this car? Yeah. yeah. Without even mentioning Columbia's. Yes. So they agree. Right. And you get them down there, and then you pull the license, and that's when – Clarence lawyers. Is this you? (laughs) Now, Eric Hayden. But he uh, said that was stolen too, didn't he? No, he did not say anything (laughs) at that point. Did Uh, you happen to find any money bags? (laughs) (laughs) A few. Yeah. Uh, Eric uh, was a horse of a little bit different color uh, in that he was very personable, uh, very good talker. And, uh, and he, had the detectives halfway convinced that he was innocent, even to the, you know, that had to be all Clarence and and he's just the innocent roommate. All this stuff falls on top of. And we even go to a polygraph uh, right there on the spot. And uh, and he semi passes the polygraph. It's uh, inconclusive, but uh, we had an excellent examiner that was very experienced in, in his personal opinion was toward the not guilty part. But following up on everything that we could follow up on, Eric had also earlier in the, in the morning had given us an alibi witness that he had ran to uh, when he was cruising around 3rd Street at 3rd and Race. And, he, and it was a female and identified her by name and, and gave us her address well, before, I mean, we're, we're ready to turn him out the door. And uh, we finally found this, this uh, alibi witness. And she says, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I saw Eric last night. He was looking for a gun because he was getting ready to go rob somebody. Oh, wow. I bet he wished he hadn't listed her as an <laughs> yeah. alibi witness. Yeah. I've got a bad case of evidence envy. Just like you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I really think yours exactly. later. You got the stuff I should have got. So yeah. thank you, friend. Well, thank this you. was the day before my birthday. Okay. So maybe it, it, it was an early birthday gift. Absolutely. It should have a bow on it. Just yes, me. it should. 
So then you back up and you let Eric know that the alibi witness is kind of rained on his parade. Mm-hmm, but he, he lawyers up about that time. So we don't have any real confessions from them, other than, but with that much physical evidence and circumstantial evidence. You don't need it. We don't need them. Yeah. Wow. And with the second guy, what do you, what do you think? Uh, what point did he lawyer up? Was it uh, when you hit him with the uh, bad alibi news? Was it something specific that he? That's dropped? correct. He was yeah. cooperative allegedly up until till then. Until uh, he awesome. was smart enough to realize that he was pretty, pretty caught. And- yeah, because wow. he, he sounded to me like he was just very a very good manipulator, which I kind of enjoy having because that uh, they just love talking. It's a sociopathic part yeah, of they, it. They bring you in exactly. a circle right and back I, to them. I was getting excited for you for a minute, but I've been, <laughs> like Erica said, he probably wised up at the last minute. So. Yeah, they did. So anyway, this thing goes, uh, both of them get charged with murder, robbery first, and arson first. And, uh, and this does qualify as a capital offense because it's a aggravating circumstance. Uh, the murder of one person wouldn't be a capital offense unless they were a police officer. But the murder in the course of a robbery or arson uh, is a capital offense, so we we went for for the death penalty on them, which just it complicates what you do. But anyway, uh, we didn't get them for the the jury came back quickly and unanimously, uh, and we see Clarence actually testified uh, during the sentencing phase, and. You know, he got, he started screaming, you know, he lost control of his emotions. As, as Why? Was, what, what did he say? Well, he was talking about the stabbing and, and, uh, and of course he was trying to put more of it on Eric, but he ended up putting it on himself too. How so? Well, just that, that he was right there. He's holding the guy down. They're fighting at the cooler and. And incriminated himself, right? Mm-hmm. For sure being involved. Yeah. Wow. We did find one knife in, in the mess of the arson scene that, that we felt could have been the murder weapon. But uh, with fire and water, uh, there wasn't any way to put that. Was it ever determined who did the actual stabbing? Or did both of them have parts in that? Yeah, I think they both had parts in it. But uh, Did they ever say that if the fire was a part of the plan, part of the premeditation, or was it just like, oh, this wild spree, like let's we better cover this up with lighting a fire? Yeah, I think that was an afterthought. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an intention at first. Uh, so, but but they never did say. Mm-hmm. So we we don't know. And it didn't look like they tried to destroy uh, the victim with the fire, right? You don't think it was a. And that might have been a hope yeah. uh, from it. It just happened that the first units there before the building was fully engulfed uh, with flame uh, that uh, they managed to drag his body out. Yeah, cause I, and I don't want to do a how-to for would-be people killing, but that arson thing on destroying a body really isn't that effective. So I hope I didn't, just didn't help somebody out to, yeah. you know, to, to go yeah. by lime or a deeper Thanks, uh, over backhoe or something. But it really is the murder police podcast. <laughs> yes. How to yeah. version. Yeah, tune in next week for yeah. more tips. <laughs> but you know that really the reality of it is that sometimes they will try to do a destruction of a body, and uh, you know that's that's a difficult thing to do in a crematorium under the right circumstances. But it does buy time. 
I will say, because I've got some cases that uh, it will buy time. And again, if you're the wrong person listening to this, just delete what I said. You know, <laughs> disregard, as we say in trial. Speaking of which, do you remember anything during the trial phase that mm-hmm. stood out as far as the uh, the prosecution plan or anything? Because you had a firefighter, I mean, assistant commonwealth attorney, Mike Malone, and there was a story behind that, too. Mm-hmm. Was there anything in the strategy or in the trial that stuck out that uh, – did you recall, or for example, when you testified, did we challenged on cross in any particular ways that were interesting? Uh, actually, no. Uh, when you take the stand and you're obviously well prepared, you don't get attacked very often. I can count on one hand, I think, the times that they really got aggressive with me. For one thing, if you come across to the jury, and this is the way I always philosophized on this, is I'm an independent giver of fact. Uh, I'm not necessarily on anybody's side. Yeah, I'm biased. So I'm going to be as cooperative with the defense attorney uh, and uh, as I am with the prosecutor. In, in fact, out of all my friends that are attorneys, probably more of them are defense attorneys because <laughs> I, I get into the arguments with the prosecutors. So it, it was, uh, like I said earlier, this was, uh, more of a sprint type of case involved 10 detectives, 15 fire personnel, 11 patrol officers, three crime scene technicians, two private security specialists, and, and like I say, a first assistant Commonwealth attorney slash fireman involved. And it had hundreds of pieces of, of evidence, uh, but it was wrapped up in a 17 and a half hour day by the time. From beginning to end. And, uh, yes. Wow. And you can guess where we went for dinner and, and a drink afterwards. The Col- other Columbia. Columbia downtown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah that, that was kind of the standard thing to do. Well, I have to ask, did Clarence or Eric, I guess they both were probably Clarence. I'm thinking was the mastermind since he worked there. It was probably his idea. He knew the routine of of what would happen with the money bag on Friday or how closing went or certainly knew maybe Clay's schedule since Clay was the manager there. Did you ever find out was his intent just to rob or did he intend to murder because Clay would know who he is? My personal opinion is they went in there with the intention of killing. Otherwise, I mean, how would they get by with it? Clarence is wearing his uniform. He had just worked that night. Eric had been in the place several occasions before, so Clay Nelson knew them both. Uh, I don't know if they used any masks. We didn't recover any, uh, but I'd say that would have been futile uh, still wearing your uh your uniform. Or perhaps he, he posed it as though he came back because he forgot something since it was closing. Well, and Clay probably, probably just let him in. Thinking, sure. He's an employee, so mm-hmm. I'll let him in. Yeah. But then it goes downhill. Mm-hmm. Uh, during the, the uh, penalty phase of, of the trial is uh, when uh, it was entered into evidence that they both had psychological evaluations. And I think that Clarence tested down in the 50s and, and Eric was in the low 60s. For IQ? IQ. Wow. And what was the sentence again in the end? Uh, they got the life without parole uh, for the, without eligibility for parole for 25 years. At, at that time, that was the next highest penalty that you could get next to the death penalty. 
Yeah, because those IQs would probably be a, an issue in, a, in an appeal on a death penalty case for sure at, the, at those numbers. No doubt. Yeah, for sure. And, uh, you know, going back to that thing about killing them is that with all that effort with using the, uh, getting past that tie and getting back in that cooler, I'd say that, yeah, that's intent all over the place too. Do you think it helped when, was it Clarence that testified in penalty phase? Did you? Yes. Do you, do you think he bought some curry or some favor from the? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. But he certainly cinched it down on Eric. Well, that works too. Yeah. Well, that's, you know, they say if you get attacked by a bear, you don't have to be faster than a bear. You just got to be faster than your friend running too. So that's, that's right. That's pretty much comes down to that. Yeah. See, I'm, I'm buddy, surprised. You're going with me. Yeah. I'm surprised that um, Eric's IQ was fairly low since he was really a smooth talker and very charismatic and everyone believed him up until a point. I mean, you have to be pretty smart to pull something like conversationally off like that. Or at least when you're standing in line, you know, you, you get the gift of gab and, and perhaps not the gift of higher mathematics. Gotcha. Yeah. I, I just still can't get matter. over the thousand Island writing Clarence's name in a box with, I mean, putting myself in Clay Nelson's shoes, one would think that, if he thought he would survive that, then writing that wouldn't be necessary because then he would just come out of it alive and tell them what he saw. But to write that, he's most likely thinking this is this is probably the end for me. And how horrific is that knowing that they're trying to get in that door and you're trying your best right. to hold it with a necktie? And do, do we think he was writing it as he's holding it with the necktie? One in well, apparently one. the necktie was tied around uh, one of the racks inside of there, but it was a free standing rack. So that's what caused that to dump everything around the cooler. So, yeah, he was probably back to holding it himself and it would have reached. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a very big cooler. and To make a tiny stylus, like ro rolling up some cardboard, like you said, mm -hmm. to then dip into... Thousand Island dressing from these plastic bowls, all of that all at once. That's just horrific and so tragic. Yeah. Apparently Clay was a fighter and, and uh, nobody that we interviewed that, that knew him were surprised at, at it, uh, that, that he wouldn't give up. We've seen many victims that in a situation like that, uh, that, that just give in Crumble. to what's happening to them and, and, uh, you know, like you're used to the TV shows where you get shot and you fall down. I've seen police officers do this and and uh, all of a sudden realize, well, I hurt that bad. And, Pop and, back up. And get back up. Yeah. yeah. That happened on the Lingenfelter case. Exactly. Yeah, that's a interesting thing in and of itself. It, it Coming back to that, though, I think what it points to when you're talking about the stylus and the dressing and the terror is it uh, – Sometimes those scenes will will actually get very vocal, and and again, that's why I went back to if you have the evidence of the panic button that's in one location, so you know that it at least started in that vicinity. The ability to go to a jury and paint that quick chronology tells a story because sometimes those scenes are pretty quiet, is that they don't offer a lot. But that's a lot like if you get to a scene that has the back in the day the the, the ripped off phone cords, the phones being removed from the wall, the. Uh, the safe that was open that was not open before, those things tell you tales of terror. That somebody just simply wasn't stabbed as if that's simple, something that's simple anyway. But that's a pretty vocal scene. It, it's a, and it doesn't put the hair on the back of your neck goes up when you think about that. Well, and then I think also had Clarence 
or Eric not called in that stolen car, how different that would have made your job that evening. It certainly wouldn't have been a 17-hour day. But having the name written in the dressing, I, I'm sure you would have, have you would have linked it at some point. It would have taken you not 17 hours, but you would have linked it to who the employees were, and and that would have or or who maybe was associated with him with that name. Well, his uh, personnel records, right? Uh, Columbia's works off of a canteen type operation at that time because it had four or five different locations, so. Their commissary is downtown, and so they had the records regardless of it got burned up in, on Alexandria. But And I don't think they were destroyed on Alexandria either. So that would have given us his current address once we had the name Clarence. David always tells me that criminals are so dumb. And then you think, and they really are, had he not called that in, I mean, he just put the limelight right on himself by calling it in. You got to um, love him. Mm-hmm. Then he could have stayed, he could have gotten rid of all the evidence that next morning while things are going mm-hmm. on with you trying to track down other things. While right. them putting out a fire. Let me ask you this. Um, if you go into court, right, and you have a person that had um, put his attacker's name in Thousand Island Dressing, how well does that hold up in court? Because it seems very compelling to me, but would a jury say, you know, that's, that's kind of your Circumstantial. Say. Circumstantial, yeah. sure. If that was all we had, yeah. Okay. But there was much, much more. Yeah. So uh, it's a totality of the evidence. Obviously, it's a great clue for a you know, oh, yeah, a detective. Yeah, yeah but uh, it it puts if we were to have lost that in a suppression hearing situation, uh, you know, some judge would have just had the wild hair to throw that out. Uh, we would still have a conviction easily, but. You wouldn't be to the level of knowledge of just how horrific this crime was. It, it falls as a piece of physical evidence, which is interesting because if that had been an, even a dying declaration or a statement and he wasn't around anymore, then the battle would have started in a different way. And there's a whole other process for attacking that. So mm-hmm. the fact that it's silent like that and he didn't utter the word probably made it a little easier to keep into the case than if he had. Seriously, if he didn't sure. a declaration, there would have been a suppression hearing on that. And, yeah. uh, something to protect the record. Yeah, you don't get those very often. They're tough when you do. Well, Fran, thanks for coming and uh, and doing that sprint of a, of a case. And again, I'm sure there's a lot of people that have done the job before that are, are now understanding why they didn't have evidence as Fran got it all back in 1986. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's the story I'm sticking well, with. Yeah, And I've heard that. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah, it, yeah uh, there's a couple of comments. That's uh, probably why you're missing a few birthday yeah. cards every year. Yeah. It, uh, and I'm, and I, st- <laughs> I want to thank Erica and Jonathan for coming. And again, they're with the Lexington podcast and Eric and Jonathan give us an idea how to find your podcast. Jonathan, I'll take this since we know you're allergic to social media. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> yes, but absolutely. Take it anyway. Okay. Um, you can find us on any podcast platform, Apple, Google. We are on Stitcher as well, I believe. Um, a couple of other ones, but really Apple's generally our biggest one um, that people find us on. We, of course, we have an Instagram, which is Lexington Podcast. And if you ever want to write in or you have any sort of um, questions, follow-up questions for us or great leads for stories in Lexington, our email address is lexingtonpodcast at gmail.com. That's what I was hoping for. And I can tell the listeners that if you know anything about this city, if you're local, because we all love this town, these are the people to bring some story ideas to because they'll research them and, and do an excellent job. So with that, I'm going to turn it over to Wendy to say her adios and then we'll close this one out. Well, Erica, Jonathan, thank you all so much for coming to spend your day 
to share this story with us and to tell us a little bit about your podcast. We really appreciate you all coming. Fran, once again, thank you. You're awesome as always. Good to see you. And thank you for all those years that you put in doing this work for these victims, such as Clay and all the others that you have done. That's a lot of tired days for you and long nights. And and, um, thank you for what you've done for our city. And David, we aren't going to leave you out. You work almost as hard as Fran. And uh, (laughs) we appreciate what you did, too, because you were a great detective in your time. (laughs) Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. It's been a blast. Well, we we enjoyed it as well. Listeners, um, be sure to tune in. If you've not heard any of our other podcasts, please look them up. Friends on some of those others as well. And uh, thank you for listening. The Murder Police Podcast is hosted by Wendy and David Lyons and was created to honor the lives of crime victims so their names are never forgotten. It is produced, recorded, and edited by David Lyons. The Murder Police Podcast can be found on your favorite Apple or Android podcast platform as well as at murderpolicepodcast.com, which is our website and has show notes for imagery and audio and video files related to the cases you're going to hear. We are also on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, LinkedIn, and YouTube, which has closed captions available for those that are hearing impaired. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe for more and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your podcast from. Subscribe to the Murder Police Podcast and set your player to automatically download new episodes so you get the new ones as soon as they drop. And please tell your friends. Lock it down, Judy.